This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I'm joined by Bruce Wilson, a research system engineer that heads a few groups in the Environmental Sciences Division at Oak Ridge National Lab. So Bruce, you started in chemistry and you've had an interesting path from there to where you are now. Can you summarize this journey quickly for us? In a lot of ways, I started out with generating my own data. I got involved with high throughput research methods in material science and catalysis and was drowning in my own data. So I started writing some tools that helped me deal with that data deluge. And I moved from writing tools for me to writing tools for other people to supervising and coordinating people who were writing tools for other people. Drowning in your own data sounds like some sort of ailment. What would be the symptoms of drowning in your own data? How did you know when you were in trouble? When I was doing some earlier work in glass fiber reinforced composites, it was pretty normal that we could send off a few samples a day to the testing laboratory and they would send us back pieces of paper with all of the test results. We developed some methods where we were generating hundreds of samples a day and sending those off to the testing laboratory. And they were trying to send us back paper and we said no. Well, they figured out ways that they could send us back the sort of text equivalent of those pieces of paper. And so then we had to figure out how to parse all of the pieces that we want and pull them into different kinds of tools to work with that kind of data. This would be the late 1980s, early 1990s. So tools to work with hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of records on a desktop computer were a little bit challenging, but we pulled it off. We moved from that to doing some other kinds of work around catalysis and both doing what we called wet experiments, where we were doing things in the laboratory and dry experiments, where we were doing modeling and simulation and trying to compare those. At Dow, I was involved in their high throughput research methods, and we would do things 96 samples at a time instead of one or two samples at a time and generating large volumes of data that now the scientists who are used to just, well, I can get my one or two pieces of data a day and put it into a spreadsheet and understand it. They didn't know what to do with that, that volume of data and how to sort through it and how to find what this was telling them about the direction to go and, and how to explore these, what you might call response surface kinds of designs. Man, I don't even think by the time I entered being a research software engineer or researcher that I really did much on paper except for maybe writing down some participant information for a behavioral study and then eventually putting that into a spreadsheet somewhere. My thesis was quite literally cut and paste. I was actually using a computer to generate it. And in hindsight, I should have done it in LaTeX, but that was comparatively new. And I finished my PhD before what we know is the internet existed. That was in the uh, late 1980s. I can't even imagine. So some listeners might have noticed that I called you a research systems engineer and not a research software engineer. Could you explain for us the distinction? 
Sure. I think there's a lot of people who truly are software engineers whose day in and day out responsibility is doing software development. And I have done some of that, but my job morphed into designing computer systems. And in fact, that was the title that I got when I came to Oak Ridge in 2006 as part of the NASA Earth Observing System Data and Information System Program. They said, your job is the systems engineer. How do you design this whole system? And that includes the hardware layers, that includes networking design, that includes the protocol. It might include some software development, but it, it's the bigger, broader picture of that. And, and I suspect that many people who would look at themselves as software engineers need to do systems engineering, particularly since the world today is moving to everything as software, which is an interesting and exciting development. Everything as software, are you sort of talking about this new serverless trend? Well, serverless is part of it, although serverless is also sort of viewed as there's no such thing as the cloud. It's just somebody else's computer that you're renting, and there's no such thing as serverless. It's just somebody else's server that you can't SSH into. But it's also this idea that if I'm working in these on-demand systems, I can be writing the configuration files that define a virtual network switch and including the routing protocols and the filtering on it. I can be defining as software what my servers are, how the containers are built, how they get orchestrated, and never have to touch a particular piece of hardware. I can definitely relate to always this need to write a lot of YAML files and think about networking and orchestration. And I think in industry, there's a role called a solutions architect that seems similar, but from what I can tell from what you've told me, it seems like a solutions architect in industry is much more high level. So I've seen people, mm -hmm. and I don't want to generalize, but I've seen solutions architects, at least the ones that I know, do a lot of PowerPoints and high level design, but they're not really the ones writing sort of the configuration. Files. No, you're right. They're not. I spent almost five years as an enterprise architect for Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And one of the, the fascinating things that I learned in doing that job was the times that I was most effective were the ones where I was helping making sure that we were trying to answer the right questions. It wasn't necessarily my job to answer those questions, to do the system design, but to really work with the other people and making sure that we were really solving the right problem, what you might call requirements analysis, but at a high level. So thinking about the right questions and working with people, whether you're a software engineer or a systems engineer, these soft skills are really important and being able to be empathetic to everyone on your team, and that includes researchers and other developers. What are strategies for helping your team to be effective and also supporting them to be healthy in other ways, such as mentally, physically, you know, sleeping <laughs> enough hours every night, that sort of thing? I think a lot of it starts with we can get really passionate about what we do. I'm blessed to be able to work as part of the Earth Observing System. And there's things that we do that are important, but also understanding that caring for the world around us starts with taking care of ourselves recognizing that mental health is important. And I've talked with people in my group about my own journey. I had some challenges at an earlier part of my career and regularly see a therapist these days. And mental health is, is simply part of health. 
We have to take care of our minds as well as our bodies. And I think there's an understanding of charity. There's a lot of stuff that I love in the agile software development movement. But in particular, one of the things that I've, I've put up and I've tried to really drive home with myself is the prime directive that comes out of doing retrospectives, which is this idea that we truly understand that people did the best job that they knew how to do at the time that they did it with the skills and the information that they had at hand at that particular point in time. And if we start our interactions with other people coming from that premise, that makes such a huge difference in team dynamics and understanding that somebody had a reason to do something a particular way. What, what might that reason be? That's a really good mental strategy. Eventually having patience and being able to understand other people. I definitely also have struggled with, I guess, self-compassion. So if, if I do something wrong, the little voice in my head says, you're awful, you're terrible. Like nobody likes you, go eat some worms. And so I find it helpful. I guess the little mental strategy that I came up with is to actually imagine myself as another person. And what would I say to that other person? I wouldn't go tell them to eat some worms for sure. I would probably say, you know, you didn't mean to do that. Or, you know, you, this was an oversight. You know, you, you would have compassion. It's, it's kind of the flip side of love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes, definitely. So you mentioned this to me and I'm really interested. So I want to ask you about it, but how does diversity impact the operation of your team? There's a whole bunch of things. And I really love one of the um, slides that, that framed some things for me when I went to the um, Gartner Catalyst Conference a couple of years ago. And they were framing this in the context of the more obvious and apparent forms of diversity and moving into diversity of background and diversity of perspective. There's all of these classic examples about what happens when you get just one particular group of people being involved in a design. And as we broaden out the diversity as we get different perspectives, we get tools that work for more than just a particular group of people. We get tools that take into account different things that, that people could be thinking about, different needs that they have. We build resiliency into our team and into the tools that we build. And we, we can find answers that no one of us is going to find by ourselves. And if, if everybody in my group is just like me, then why do we need me? How do you think diversity impacts a lot of these standards groups? So the groups that are creating, I guess the best example is the FAIR principles to make scientific software findable, accessible, interoperable, and, and reusable. What sort of could go wrong if you don't have a diverse team there? And then the harder question is, let's say that you don't have a diverse team and then there's some limitation in what's developed. How do you fix that? I don't have good answers for how to fix those sorts of things. I think that when we look at the standards, it's the same problem. How do we make sure that those standards, particularly those standards that are coming up from the community, which are often, I think, some of the more longer lived ones, really do represent the broad spectrum of people, that diversity of people and perspectives that are involved in developing those standards, make them more resilient, make them more enduring, make them more useful to a broader range of people, more valuable to the world around us. And it's also just 
absolutely the right thing that needs to be done. So if we develop something that didn't start from a perspective of diversity, we can potentially take that back into some place where we've got a more diverse representation to develop those. I've seen some interesting things recently where management has been trying to sort out how to make some changes and they've pulled together some diverse groups, at least within the limits of diversity that's that may be available, but they've had multiple groups looking at things independently at the same time. I could maybe view that as, well, why do that? But it's been interesting to see how those independent teams have merged together. And I think it did mitigate some of these kinds of questions, because if you have two different groups, that single loud voice, being one of those people that is sometimes a very loud voice, can only affect maybe one group. Now you've got this independent perspective and you can see, well, what did this one group see that this other group didn't see? And how does that pull us together to create a better answer than any one group could? And two groups of 10 that come together at the end is much more manageable than a single group of 20. One thing that I think is also interesting is this observation that there's kind of these two different types of communities. They're sort of the bottom-up community. So a really good example would be like an open source community. And I tend to see a lot of diversity in open source, but then sort of the bottom-down communities, I guess, are the ones where you have more of these official panels that are coming up with criteria. Why do you think there is that distinction? And is there anything that, for example, a top-down group could do to be more like open source? I think that the top-down groups, it, it's an interesting challenge because they're looking for the people who have often developed a reputation. Who are the people that are known? Who are the experts? And in an open source environment, there certainly are open source environments that are more welcoming than others, but there is an element of who is willing to contribute. I think it is important to recognize that there can be an element of economic privilege in being able to contribute to open source. But within those constraints, there still is a freedom to participate. There is not necessarily as much of a gatekeeper in terms of who can participate in an open source project. Whereas those top-down panels, you've got to market yourself they have to know who you are. A lady by the name of Betty Devinney, she was the HR manager that hired me into my first job out of college. And she gave me a piece of wonderful, enduring advice, which was a key to success is who knows what you know and what you've done. It's not enough to have done it, but somebody else has to know that you've done it and help open those doors for you. That's again, the same issue that in some of these panels, it, it's the same people talking to each other. We know the people who are in our network and we have to become a little uncomfortable or maybe even a lot uncomfortable to step outside of that people that I know and go out looking for somebody and maybe take a risk on somebody who's not part of my circle. I know how that's challenging to, to go out and just try to bring in someone that especially, you know, that you don't know, but probably also might disagree with you and might stir things up a bit. I think the other one that it's an interesting observation that I've, I've spent some time thinking about. Again, when we talk about generalizations, we have to recognize that and, and individual people are different. But I was fortunate to hear Rathma Sujani speak at a conference. She's the lady who founded Girls Who Code. 
And her thesis was that we raise our boys to be courageous and our girls to be perfect. And that courage, this, this translates into some things that I've seen about men will apply for a job if they think they meet at least some of the qualifications and women will tend to apply for jobs where they're pretty sure that they meet all of the qualifications. And again, no two people are the same and generalizations don't apply to individuals. But that's also a factor in getting people involved in some of these things. It takes a degree of courage to step into a group where you don't know anybody. And it takes an understanding of some of the things that you were talking about earlier. When we look at ourselves, we see our own outtakes real. And when we look at other people, we see their highlights. And how do we take advantage of that difference? How do we look at ourselves and see somebody who has something to offer to this community, who has something to offer to this world, and be willing to take that risk of putting ourselves out there. And at the same time, for those of us in a position of privilege, how are we reaching out to those other people and lending that privilege, giving that privilege away if we can? Although again, I like the idea that came up in one of the seminars I was in, that privilege is the things that I don't have to think about and that other people do. How can we use those things, broaden participation, and make the world a better place? You're hinting on this idea of phenotype, and you're actually expanding it because you're suggesting that phenotype also includes life experience and things that we can't control sometimes, like our socioeconomic status, our gender. We have the Research Software Engineering Phenotype Generator, which you're probably chuckling at because you were actually a founder of the USA National Phenology Network, mm -hmm. and it looks really cool. I took a look at the site. I was looking at this work and I was thinking, you know, this is a really nice balance between research software or actually systems engineer and then domain scientists. When you look back on that experience and maybe you're still working on the project, what in particular about that collaboration worked so well and how would someone, if they were starting right now on a new project, reproduce it? I had to laugh a little bit when all of that came up. So 2006, I had just come to Oak Ridge National Laboratory and I had effectively switched from doing computer and information systems to support material scientists and chemists to doing information systems to support ecologists and climate scientists. And I got this invitation to participate in a workshop on phenology. And fortunately, at that point, Google existed, so I could look up what phenology was, and it has nothing to do with bumps on your head, but the annual life cycle events in plants and animals. It was very fortunate because in a lot of ways, they didn't invite me. They invited whoever was the person who happened to hold the job that I had at that point in time. It was a, a tremendous opportunity. I got to go to that workshop that led to several other follow-on meetings. I helped to write that first generation of cyber infrastructure. But the thing that I really enjoy and love, number one, that's a project that I'm tremendously grateful for my opportunity to contribute because I think it's maybe one of the more lasting things that I will have helped contribute to in the world as we seek to understand it. But sitting down with some of the people who were doing the science and looking at how they were collecting the data. And here's what we do. We're, we collect the data when this particular transition happens. So here's the date that we wrote that the buds 
broke for, say, the lilac or when the, the flowers bloomed or when the leaves fell off. And they would just simply record that date because that's what you could do when they were making these observations. This goes back a, a long time. I mean, Henry David Thoreau is considered one of the early people writing down these phenological observations. But what they're really writing down is the first day that they observed that particular thing happening. And that's great if somebody's going out every single day, but if somebody's only going out a few times a week, maybe to make an observation, or maybe even only once a week, it's a biased observation of that date. And we had a beautiful aha moment as we were looking at this and say, well, if what we really wrote down was the phenostate, what was the plant or animal like or doing? What's its state in that particular point in time? And the state at the next observation, well, then we can infer the date of that transition from those observations. And we know now how we can compare that new data with the old data, but we get a unbiased estimator going forward and we get an, an assessment of the uncertainty in that date. And when we explained that back to the larger group, it was interesting to see the light bulbs going off. And it was such a, a beautiful result to me of a collaboration between people who understand data structures and how I can put data into a database and the scientists who are really trying to do a thing and come up with you know, maybe a small thing in the, in the grand scheme of the world, but a significant advance in the state of the art of that particular science discipline. So we're actually coming up on time. So I have just a few more questions. Sure. You said to me in our email correspondence, the easier someone else's job appears to be, the less likely I really understand what it is. And I thought that was really interesting. And I'm wondering if you can unwrap it a little bit and maybe give an example. There's examples all around, but let me start with this. So I came into Oak Ridge in 2006 and did work in this particular project, the um, Oak Ridge National Laboratory Distributed Active Archives Center for Biogeochemical Dynamics. And that was an adjustment, but I was talking with my friends who were in the enterprise IT organization and a little bit frustrated about some things that weren't working as well as, as they should. And an opportunity came up for me to put my money where my mouth was. And I actually moved into the enterprise IT organization and all of a sudden was responsible for the team that managed Active Directory for 20,000 computers, that had to do with patching for 20,000 computers, who was responsible for the infrastructure to support 5,000 scientists and their staff who are trying to advance the state of the art. That looked to be a heck of a lot easier job until I actually walked in and learned all of the kinds of corner cases, all of the criteria, all of the balances, all of the competing demands that those folks had to face day in and day out to get their jobs done the best that they knew how to do it. I very quickly gained an appreciation for there was an awful lot of things about that job that I didn't know that I didn't know. And I had some wonderful people in that group that spent their time helping me appreciate the challenges so that we could move forward and find solutions to those. Ah, okay, I understand. So if you look at someone else's job and it seems really, really simple, it's probably not really simple. It's probably just that you don't it totally probably understand. probably means that there's something important there that I don't understand. 
And finally, in homage to Allison Sheridan, who runs the podcast Chit Chat Across the Pond and is an absolutely fabulous host, I simply must ask, when you look at your current role and all the challenges that you deal with, what's the problem to be solved? The problem to be solved for me today and where I'm at is, what do I leave behind? I've been in this business for quite a while. And there was a time when I was younger and maybe a little bit more aggressive when I was most concerned about what was I going to be doing on into the future. And now what I'm concerned about is how can I make other people successful? And in the end, I find that a much more gratifying place to be. That's really beautifully said. It's like we all have our own stories. But when you really look at our own developer stories, it's really more about how does our developer story contribute to this overall, I don't know what to call it, mm -hmm. <laughs> scientific discovery story or something like that. Exactly. So Bruce, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. You have so much wisdom. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I love hearing your perspectives on <laughs> diversity and teams. And I wish I had more time to keep hearing your wisdom, but I, I must let you go. So thank you so much for being on RSE Stories. Thank you very much. And I look forward to hearing the wisdom of the other people yet to come on the podcast.